Hello and welcome to the Spiraling Higher podcast hosted by me, Sam, Mindset and Manifestation Coach. And me, Gina, your Biz and Mindset Coach. We're here to support you on your spiritual journey by bringing you intimate and raw conversations about healing, manifestation, consciousness, and spirituality. We hope this podcast makes you feel less alone as you become aware of your patterns and limiting beliefs to uplevel your life, manifest like a boss, and together, spiral higher. Hello, and welcome back to the Spiraling Higher podcast. I'm your host, Sam, and I'm here with my incredible co-host, Gina. Hello, hello. And today, we are bringing you a trauma-informed therapist. Right now, we are in the era of Instagram therapists. Everyone is looking at memes, resharing to their mom, brother, sister, friend, BFF, partner about how to have their needs met, what boundaries are, and how to not cross them and set them. And we are so excited to bring you Miss Simone Saunders, who is a graduate-level registered social worker and therapist from Calgary. She is the founder of The Cognitive Corner, a group psychological practice that focuses on providing trauma informed and culturally responsive psychological care to people in Alberta and Ontario. You might also know her from Instagram and TikTok because she has a huge following there. And the handle is The Cognitive Corner. And that's where we heard about her. I think you sent me her stuff, right? Yeah, I've been following her for a while. Um, I just really like her content. She has really, really impactful videos that are very relevant to, I think, a lot of our healing journeys. Yeah, her goal is really to normalize mental health struggles and provide accessible psychoeducation. So whether or not you're working with her, just by looking through her profile and watching her TikTok and Instagram reels, you're able to really understand why you're acting the way that you're acting, right? Because I think that when we are in conflict and conversation with people, we notice that we are triggered. And then instead of getting curious about why is this feeling happening? We often project, oh, that person, that thing, that situation is causing my feeling. And when you put on a trauma-informed lens, you're able to go back in time and figure out, okay, at what point in my childhood did a similar event or feeling feel like an unsafe event in my body? And how am I currently interpreting this event right now in the present moment to be similar to that one? And I think that healing really is when you get curious about how this event is actually not like that event and rewriting the story so that you no longer have those types of triggered responses to seemingly neutral stimuli. Because I think anyone can agree that a trigger really is just a super disproportionate response to a relatively neutral event, right? They say if it's hysterical, Mm -hmm. it's historical. Ooh, I've heard that before. I like that. And I love it. The cool thing that I really... I love that we went into this with Simone, just understanding what trauma is, because I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. feel like trauma needs to be this really, really, really big thing, which obviously a lot of times it is, but trauma ultimately is when it's just too much too soon for our bodies. Even if our minds feel like, this is fine, I'm fine, but if your body is feeling anxious, and I know a lot of us have experienced that where I know I'm fine, but I feel like I'm not fine. And Simone's explanation of what trauma is and why it happens, how to cope with it ultimately, I think you guys are going to find very, very helpful. We also talked a lot about boundaries and how to set them specifically with people who might not understand why we're setting the boundary or even what boundaries are. Maybe that's with your family members or your friends or other people who might not be on the same journey as you or not might, might not be as aware as you. So I found that pretty helpful when she explained that. 
Oh, that was super helpful. Yeah. Understanding boundaries in a cultural context is huge because, you know, as two Asian women, to stand up for yourself and set a boundary is almost deemed as disrespectful. And in a culture that asks you to really be respectful of your elders, right? There's almost like this sense that you need to be disrespectful of yourself. And so honoring yourself is hard to be held within the cultural view that you should be respectful. And so that's something that we talked about. And honestly, if you are just a human being, on the planet Earth and you've been triggered, this conversation is for you because trauma is not limited to what we call big T trauma, right? I think that a lot of people have misinterpreted the events of their life to be, you know, not a big deal. Like, why am I freaking out? And it's really important to realize that your body and mind do not interpret events in the same way. So what seems like not a big deal to the mind is a very big deal to the body. And whether it is or not is a very unique experience. And the example I like to think of is, you know, if someone was picked up late from school, right? They could have interpreted that event to be they're being abandoned. No one cares about them. They feel really scared in that moment. Whereas another kid might just think like, whatever, mom's late, she'll be here in 30 minutes. Now, the first person is going to feel triggered every single time someone's late. This has nothing to do with someone being late, but everything to do with what you experienced in the past and what you made it mean about someone being late and how you felt. And so we really go into that. And this conversation normalizes and illuminates a lot of why you act out the way that you do. And so if you are interested in why Mm -hmm. and how trauma develops, how to really meet those needs and develop better coping mechanisms for yourself so that you can have healthier relationships, this is going to be a treat for you. Mm -hmm. Let us know what you guys think. Hey guys, it's Sam, and I'm quickly interrupting this juicy convo to tell you about the newest addition to my morning routine, which seems to be getting longer and longer every year. I've been trying for years to eat more veggies, but I'm a lazy cook and I don't love salads, so I've made a healthy compromise thanks to Organifi. The company set out to create a delicious and convenient superfood blend that actually tastes good, and thank goodness they succeeded because normally green juice ends up tasting like grass, but not Organifi's green juice powder. I'm actually currently loving the crisp apple flavor because I know I'm getting superfoods like chlorella, spirulina, and wheatgrass. It tastes great and it reduces my stress thanks to the added ashwagandha, gives me balanced energy with a touch of matcha, and ensures I support my overall health by eliminating cravings and detoxifying my whole system. If you're looking to add a superfood to your morning routine, head over to OrganifiShop.com to try their green juice powder or any one of their superfood blends for 20% off using the code SAM. That's OrganifiShop.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I-S-H-O-P.com. And once again, you can use the code SAM for 20% off. Let's dive back into this episode. Welcome, Simone, to our podcast. Sam and I were just talking about how excited we are to jump into everything with you because as all of our listeners know... We talk a lot about trauma, a lot about triggers, and we are just so excited to finally get a therapist's perspective. So welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. Fellow Albertan. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Simone and I are both from Alberta. So we're just going to dive right in. I mean, we've talked, like I said, a lot about trauma. So I think where we want to start is your definition of it, because I feel like there's a lot of stigma around trauma. I mean, even my husband feels like he doesn't have any trauma, but I'm like, everybody does. And I think just a lot of people assume that that means something really terrible happens, or we feel like we're not justified to call it trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would just love to hear your definition of it. 
Yeah. So the way that I define it is anything that deeply disrupts your sense of safety and security in the world. Mm-hmm. And that is very, very subjective. So something that is traumatizing to me cannot be traumatizing at all to you or to someone else. And so it's really important to remember that it's not necessarily about the event itself. It's more so about how your nervous system experiences that event. Mm, That is so important because I think that what we logically believe is not a big deal, right? And we can even gaslight ourselves is a completely big deal to the body. I almost think of, although my body and mind are connected, they're interpreting things in different ways. Do you find that people are doing that often in their sessions? Oh, 100%. And I think too, historically, I know when I was a child, something that, you know, is just commonly taught to us or, or spoken to us is like, oh, that's not such a big deal. Like, don't worry about it. You're okay. Just get over it. You're too sensitive. You're this, you're that. Don't and cry. Then it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it causes that incongruency of like, okay, my body feels like this is a big deal, but what I'm being told is that it's not. So how do I reconcile with that? Yeah. Yeah. And as kids, like we don't, you don't know. Like I have a daughter and she's been such a mirror for me reflected in when I was a kid. And I remember when my parents would yell at me, oh, don't get upset about that. Stop complaining. You don't know that it's supposed to be okay, right? So as a child, like you you don't really know how to regulate through, through all of these experiences. So then as an adult, it makes sense then that we don't know how to regulate our emotions at that point. And mm-hmm. so I guess is everyone traumatized in your opinion? Like, does everybody have trauma that they have to work through? I think that everybody has likely experienced some sort of trauma or toxic stress, but mm. in terms of that impacting their their life, you know, in the present or going forward, that's up for debate. So for mm. some people, they experience things that would be considered traumatic to the nervous system and they have a qu- adequate sa- safety and support in order to move through that. Other mm. people don't necessarily. And I think especially for you know, our generation, mental health wasn't really a thing. We didn't really talk about mental health. We didn't talk about the connection to the body, any of that kind of stuff. So a lot of that just goes suppressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in an age now where people are becoming more aware of like somatic work, right, you know, dealing with the body and understanding there's, there's psychological and stored memory there. And so I've been able to uncover this, and I'm sure a lot of your clients have, when I'll be faced with something seemingly neutral or trivial in the environment, but my body is like having a total spasm, like just freak out, shut down. One of the three responses that the nervous system has, right? The fight, flight, or freeze. And instead of meeting my needs in that moment with some sort of practice, which I would love for you to go into what practices have worked for you and your clients, but I just go into the mind story about why I'm freaking out. Or like, I just start judging myself. I'll think, why am I acting like this? Like, why am I being so crazy, right? And I might even like further isolate, which is generally speaking what I do, which then signals to my body that that actually was a bad thing. And then I never heal. Yeah. Yeah. I think something that you touched on is really important. And that's like the practice of safety behaviors. And oftentimes safety behaviors are kind of what keep us in that negative feedback loop of, oh, I'm feeling anxious. And so because I'm feeling anxious, I'm going to go down this thought spiral or I'm going to isolate myself or whatever it is. And that temporarily keeps the anxiety at bay, but then perpetuates that narrative that anxiety is bad and it's dangerous. Yeah. And so how how do we, because that's been like me and Gina's journey this entire past few years is 
trying to see all emotions as signs, signals, neutral, right? There are no good or bad emotions, although in our culture, we say positive and negative, right? Which is just like a polarity. It's not actually that one is better or worse, such as when we say high and low, but naturally we do higher, like hierarchically view these, right? We want to always be happy and joyful. And then we try to like suppress and get away from what we believe is negative, which we're translating to be bad. So what is a way that you've been able to help your clients sort of neutralize these emotions and not try to suppress them? Because I think it is overall, it's the resistance to them that is making the experience of them more painful. Absolutely. I always like to frame things like an experiment. So this is something that my clients have probably heard me say a million times is let's experiment with this. And it's not with the intent of things are going to go positively or negatively. It's just information regardless of what happens. So is it something that's comfortable or uncomfortable? Kind of using descripting words. So mm-hmm. is it something that feels positive to you or feels neutral or feels negative? And then that way we can really understand that all of these things are just information that help us guide us to what we need. And so if something mm-hmm. feels maybe negative, then what are we needing in that moment? Are we needing comfort? Are we needing soothing? Are we needing to distance ourselves from whatever that is? My question here that just came up is, I think a lot of us become codependent on the other person giving the need. And it's so confusing because of course, as kids, your parents are supposed to meet the need. And so then there's Mm -hmm. some point where you become an adult where now they're not going to be giving you that need. So then we replace that usually with our partners or with friends. And now we're kind of unlearning needing anyone, right? Where we are meant to kind of meet our own needs. So I'm curious to know in a relationship, like what, where is that line though? Because I think is another person ever supposed to be meeting those needs? Are we supposed to get to the point where we're supposed to just meet all their own needs? What are your thoughts on that? I was actually having a conversation about this the other day, and I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. typically people kind of sit on either end of the spectrum. They're myself, I'm very hyper-independent. You're not going to find me really reaching out to people, and that's something I'm working on. And then on the other end of the spectrum, codependency where I can't regulate without somebody else. And so Mm -hmm. I think as humans, we are wired for connection. We are community people. And so we need a little bit of both. But I think it's really about, A, having the skills in order to self-regulate and assessing when, do I need to self-regulate at this point? Or is this something that I need extra support with? And neither is bad or good, but it's just, you know, understanding either of those things in excess is not necessarily helpful all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that this is so interesting. And I think that a lot of people are wondering that to themselves all the time. Like, is this something that I need help with? Or can I just work on this myself? And in the context of a relationship, I think what's so confusing to people is, is this feeling that I'm feeling valid? Like, should I be getting this need met through this person? Or is this just something that I'm projecting? And so I know that a lot of your content is about sort of gaslighting our own self. And this is where I've been honestly really confused, especially within the context of my relationship, because there are times when I think, okay, like this is definitely a me thing and I can see that very clearly and I need to work on it and I won't project and I'll just deal with it and regulate my nervous system. But when are the times when I am not totally projecting. Maybe this is something that maybe they're projecting their trauma onto me. And I think that's when people are so confused. There's so much conflict because, you know, what is traumatizing for you in a scenario and how you show up in the relationship with that can also trigger someone 
else's. And so then I'm sure you see this, Simone, and I'm curious how you deal with this. But when you see people who are fighting, but they're not fighting each other, they're fighting their own trauma, right? How do we sort of like break that pattern so that every person within the context of a relationship can heal their own selves without making it the responsibility of the other person? Mm. Yeah. Relationships are hard work. I will say that first and foremost. (laughs) Relationships are hard work. (laughs) And when you're dealing with two, especially two opposite responses, that's when things can get a little bit difficult and a little bit messy. And I think it's really about having the openness within those relationships to say, okay, let's talk about this when neither of us are triggered, when we're both in a neutral space. What are some things that are triggering to you? What are some things that are triggering to me? How can I navigate that on my own? And how can we navigate that together in this relationship and vice versa? So that there's responsibility on for ourselves, first and foremost, but there's also responsibility within the context of a relationship, knowing that you're building something with someone. Mm-hmm. I like that because I think in that conversation, then you're kind of acknowledging that, hey, like we're both going to do this and we're both going to take responsibility. Because I think sometimes I know Sam and I have talked a lot about responsibility versus blame. So, you know, in conversations or arguments with my husband, sometimes I'll say, you know, you've got to take responsibility for that. And he'll be like, but that's not my fault. And I'm like, but that's different. That's different. And so I think, you know, when we can both say, hey, what can we both take responsibility for? Or what can we both do to contribute to meeting this need for you? I think that's when the guard can come down a little bit because I think initially, obviously inherently in an argument, you're just on opposing sides. So I think when you're working with somebody else with trauma that you both are experiencing on different scopes, I think it's important to acknowledge that both are going to be met. Whereas I think in a lot of arguments, it's kind of more on one side or someone's fighting so much for their side only. So I like how you worded that. I'm going to try that in my relationship. (laughs) Report back, report back. Yes, I will. (laughs) How do we then become aware of our triggers, right? I think obviously for most of us who are listening to this episode, we we know, right, when we feel a certain way. But in those moments, mm-hmm. I think that we are disillusioned and believe that, like, no, the person's causing me to feel this way. Like, obviously, right? And it's like, if you weren't here or not even a person, but maybe it's a situation, like maybe it's being in line at Starbucks or someone cutting you off in traffic, right? Like we do believe that those are actually other things outside of us impacting us. And I'm sure you have the same perspective, Simone, but that's obviously very disempowering. So now we have to go outside of ourselves and like, you know, change the flow of traffic. We have to alter this person's behavior. But how do we empower someone from a therapeutic perspective to take responsibility and heal themselves so that they're not projecting that everyone else in the world needs to change before they can experience a more positive emotional world? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I always like to say is that regardless of how much work you've done on yourself, there are people that are going to make you angry, make you upset. You're going to have anxiety. You're going to be fearful, all of those things. And so there's always going to be external stimuli, no matter what, because that's just life. And so really it's about our reactions to those external stimuli. So if you're noticing that there's something that causes you a larger reaction than, you know, is maybe typical or is a larger reaction than you feel more comfortable with, then get curious about that. What is it about this person, this experience, this place that is causing that for you? And 
prep it beforehand if you can. You know, if you're noticing that like, okay, I know that I have this long drive ahead of me. I know it's rush hour. There's going to be traffic. And I know that I get super agitated, super upset during in traffic. What is it that I can do in order to set myself up for success? What is it that I can do in order to soothe myself knowing that this is something that I have difficulties with? Mm-hmm. And so it's really about understanding what you can control versus what you can't control. And I guess kind of being prepared, like you said, for the next time and, and being aware of the triggers and then setting yourself up for success. Because I know for yeah. me in the mornings, I Sam already knows this, I have always been the time where I tend to get the most stressed with my daughter because we're rushing out the door. Mm-hmm. We're always busy. And, and I had to really figure out why are we always getting into these arguments in the morning? And it's because it's when there's just a lot of stuff going on and I'm trying to do work at the same time. And so like you said, I did have to kind of think, okay, no work until she's at school because I need to protect this time because it's too much for me and my nervous system in the mornings to do everything at once. And that's why I'm reacting. So that, that definitely has helped me in my, in my journey. But I'm curious to know, like when you're at the peak of that trigger, because if you can catch it beforehand, that's great. But sometimes just (laughs) go fast from zero to a hundred where even when I'm at my peak, I know what I need to do in the moment. I know. Okay, yeah. I should calm down. I should take a beat. I should take a minute, but I cannot calm myself down or it's just too past the point of being able to rein myself back in. So what are some strategies that you have to self-regulate when you're at the peak? So the first thing that I want to start with is just understanding like the nervous system and the brain a little bit. So mm-hmm. I talk a lot about the window of tolerance in my sessions with clients. And so for any listeners that are new to this concept, essentially it's a model for your nervous system. So the window of tolerance is where you feel regulated, you can think, you can feel at the same time. But when you're outside of your window of tolerance, that's when your nervous system is in alert mode and you are either in hypoarousal or hyperarousal. And so in those moments, your prefrontal cortex, which is where your decision-making is, your logical thinking, all of that kind of stuff, that shuts all the way down. It is off. So that's where our coping skills live. And so a lot of people are like, okay, but I know all these coping skills, but when I'm triggered, I don't remember any of them or I just can't do it. And the reason is because that part of your brain shuts down. And so you can't. And so the first tip I always give is practice your coping skills frequently when you're not triggered. Because we need to make that something that's, you know, just habitual so that when that part of your brain shuts down and you're feeling triggered, it's like, okay, I know that just automatically something I do is like, go get ice and I put it under my chest. And that's just Mm. something I do. And the other thing is just really being aware of your body. And so that's where that body awareness comes in is how do I know when I'm at 10 out of 100? or 50 out of 100? What shows up in my body? What kind of sensations? Do I notice that my heart starts beating really fast or that my body gets really hot or that I start to clench my jaw or whatever it is? Because that typically happens far before we're even cognitively aware that we're just losing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the body sort of like informs the mind and then the mind's like, do we need to freak out about this? And then before you know it, you are freaking out. And I think that you know, the work that we need to do is obviously, like you said, once the mind has come back online, you know, get curious and wonder like, okay, like what led to that? But I think what happens for so many people and including myself on my journey has been, I actually experienced so much anger and judgment because of how I acted when my mind was offline, right? Because I am acting from a place of 
total, I call it emotion mind, which I think a lot of therapists use where, you know, I kind of act from the context that this is always going to be like this or like it's never like that or you know I oh like I'm either all terrible or all good or something else is terrible or all good I'm like thinking in these really hyper extremes and so when I come back into awareness it's hard for me to sometimes view my experience neutrally objectively curiously which I think is the key to being able to find the tools that are going to help next time so how do you help clients move out of that sort of self-directed shame and judgment and finger pointing like, oh, like I'm just so like, I'm just so messed up. Like, why do I act like that? You know, Gina and I, we have definitely, definitely had to address our hot tempers. And rather than initially getting really curious about like, okay, like why did I get so angry? Like, what was that? It's like, oh my God, I I keep getting so effing mad. Like, and and like I'm, I'm the bad Mm -hmm. one. And then interestingly, this shame actually only drives more of the same behavior. So once again, how do we get people uh-huh. to, yeah, compassionately address what has happened, even if it did hurt people's feelings in the process? I think it's really about detaching the b- behavior from self. So just because mm-hmm. you're disappointed with a behavior um, or you're angry at a behavior or you just don't like something that you did, that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. And so both those can exist, that you're disappointed in how you acted, but you still know that you are a good person who deserves good things, who deserves relationships, love, affection, all of it. I have a counter question to that, a little bit of a challenge because (laughs) I have been told not just in the relationship with my partner, but like family members and things like that. Okay. After I have like a freak out because I can get pretty angry. Like I, Gina and I can just (laughs) spew off like at a million miles a minute. Like we are just like verbal monsters, like when it comes to being triggered. And Afterwards, mm-hmm. of course, when I come back into the self-energy, I come back into my body, my brain is back online, I'm not in that state of fight, I mm-hmm. obviously apologize, right? I'll say, I wasn't yeah. being myself, I'm I'm really sorry, I didn't mean any of that. But I get comments from people like, okay, well, actions speak louder than words. So, like, yeah. c- kind of like, your apology means nothing, I need to see it in action. And that kind of conflicts with like my behavior is not connected to the self thing because if my actions aren't who I am, then what is? And if, do you know what I'm saying? I'm just kind of curious for people, um, Mm -hmm. how can they begin to disidentify or unattach themselves from actions without kind of not taking responsibility for the actions that they were taking. Does that make sense? Yeah, without like skirting the blame, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that wasn't me, right? right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 So the way that I look at it is that responsibility still exists even when you detach the behavior from yourself. So you can still be a worthy human being and have behavior that is not helpful for people or makes people hurt or crosses people's boundaries or whatever that is. And that's something that you have to take responsibility for. And behavior also has consequences. So if there are people who say, you know what, this behavior has happened a certain amount of times and I'm going to have to distance myself or whatever that is, that's a consequence of that behavior, not the consequence of who you are isn't worthy of being someone that is loved. I think that that's really difficult for a lot of people. And I'm sure you've uncovered this in a lot of your sessions, but we are treated a certain way based on our behavior when we're children. And so Mm -hmm. we're exhibited a lot Mm -hmm. of conditional love. And so naturally, when we act out of alignment with seemingly positive or well-rewarded behaviors, we, we do just think that we're bad. 
And then we identify with Uh that. And then, like I said earlier, it leads to more of the same. And so, yeah, that's a sticky, that's a sticky one. It is because I think that, like you had said, as children, a lot of us were brought up that way, where our behavior is who we are as a person. And I think that, you know, the future generations, if that can kind of be detached and that would be so helpful because I have a nephew and whenever he misbehaves or he, he, you know, sometimes struggles with his own anger. And whenever that happens, I make sure that I let him know, like, I still love you. I still want to be around you, but I need to be safe when I'm around you. So if you're throwing things, if you're trying to hit me, I can't be safe. But when you are safe, I want to be around you because I can't put myself in danger. That is so key. And just to even piggyback off of that, because again, with my daughter, I remember anytime I would be upset with her, I always stop and I say, you know, I still love you. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time I asked her that, remember, Sam, I asked her and she she was was like, like, I don't know. I don't think I know. And I was like, you don't. I said, what do you feel in these moments when I'm upset? And she said, I feel like you don't, you don't love me. And then that's when I just, so every time, because I remember in those moments when I was a child and my parents would yell, I remember just thinking, I just wish they would love me. Mm -hmm. I wish they, they didn't hate me so much. I wish I could be better so that they would love me. And so I think that that's so important for not only parents, but even in just maybe with our relationships with our partners or even friends to let them know like, Hey, I love you. This is just something that I want to work through right now. Because Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of defensiveness that comes up in an argument because the person's trying to defend the love or Mm -hmm. feeling like they're undeserving of it now. So they're defending that point. So I love that you pointed that out because I think it's important to explain to the person that, Hey, I still love you, even though that this boundary has been crossed. Yeah. I feel like the intention behind that is really, really strong. Mm -hmm. And it's really about understanding that when we think about boundaries, it's really about how close can I be while also being safe? And so sometimes mm-hmm. that means that we can't be very close if the behaviors right. don't exhibit safety. I think sometimes a challenge too, and I'm sure for a lot of people, we've talked about at the retreat, Sam, where you're in a relationship, whether it be a friend or partner or with your parents, where the other person might not speak the same language. They might not be in a place where they understand what you're trying to do. Um, I remember one of the first times me and Sam both didn't freak out on our husbands. They were like, they went crazy. I mean, they were like (laughs) so not used to us not freaking out that it almost created a worse response where I'm like, I'm just trying to do the things that you keep telling me to do. And now, like, because you're not used to that response, right? So, mm-hmm. but just even with friends, like I said, sometimes actually there was a post that you made um, about setting boundaries with people who don't understand that. Like you might say to a friend, I can't see you today, but because they don't understand the context of that boundary, they might make that mean that you're being a bad friend. Mm-hmm. So what are some tips that you have in relation to having these conversations with somebody that might not be on the same wavelength? I think that it goes back to kind of that concept of what we can and can't control. So we can communicate things in the most respectful way, in the most articulate way, and there will still be people who just don't understand or choose not to understand us. And so I think it's taking control of those things. Am I being articulate? Am I being compassionate? Am I being respectful? And is there openness to continue this conversation? And again, that depends on, you know, the type of relationship and whatnot, but in the ideal relationship where, you know, it's reciprocal and whatnot, is there openness to continue this conversation? And if all those things are present, then the responsibility of the other person is to tackle their own feelings around it, right? I feel like you are being a bad friend because maybe the underlying feeling is I miss you. I'm I'm feeling hurt. I wanted to see you. And those things are okay, but it's 
uh, you're being a bad friend that we hear. And then we're just like, well, okay, what? That makes conflict. Right. And I think that's something that just every human on earth deals with, especially if you're listening to this podcast. There is obviously some you know, developed level of awareness, but you are still in relationship with people who are maybe not. And when I think about boundaries, I also like to think of the um, setting of them in a cultural context that views them as disrespect. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, me and Gina specifically having grown up in Asian households, right? To set a boundary is kind of, that's, that's not really something that's met with a lot of understanding and Mm -hmm. yeah, not at all really. And so, how do we how do we set boundaries right and make sure that we feel safe but do that with someone who's not willing to do the work that you just mentioned you know getting curious about how it affected them right because i think that in relationship with people in different contexts you might be doing that awareness work and thinking okay i'm i'm not feeling safe and i'm getting curious about that and realizing that i need to set this boundary but the other person is projecting that actually you're causing this entire problem and so that's obviously not a positive result for me to just say, okay, I'm going to set my boundary and like, you know, you deal with yourself. Obviously we, we want there to be like cohesion here. And so how do we address someone mm-hmm. who is not willing to do the work and getting curious on their end? I think it's really tough, especially in the context of culture, right? Because even in the black yeah. culture, that's, it's, it's similar, right? Mm-hmm. Children are to be seen, not heard, regardless of what age you are, you're not to have boundaries essentially because that represents disrespect. Yeah. And so yeah. I think it's really difficult. And I think that It's really individualistic in terms of person to person, what they feel comfortable with, but a large piece of it is meeting the person where they're at. So that means being really honest with yourself about the relationship. So what your needs are, your needs may not be able to get met in this relationship. And so what does that mean for you? How close do you want to be knowing that this person is not able to meet your needs right now? Right. But I think me and Gina's follow up question is can anyone actually? meet them? Or is it really just the sole responsibility of ourselves to meet them and bring awareness to relationships? I think it's, it's reciprocal, ideally in relationships, right? So if I have a need of space, then ideally my partner, my friend, my family respects that space, right? Mm. Um, If they don't, then, you know, my, the enforcer for the boundary is I'm going to take that space anyways, but that might cause a rift in the relationship that is just something additional Ah, to address. Wow. Okay. No, that's actually really good. That's a really good reframe for me. So it's that you you need to set the boundary and become aware of what your needs are, be the responsible person and communicate them and hopefully reciprocally receive what you need so that it doesn't become an additional problem to address. And you are responsible for saying that though. Mm. Mm. Right. Because I think a lot of people try to set the boundary. I know for myself included, I mean, my upbringing was very much, I, I didn't have a voice and I, I, it wasn't really met with any understanding. And so I think in my relationships, I would try to set the boundary. And then if it wasn't met with, like, sure, I'm going to honor that. It made me feel like I was wrong for needing that. And so then mm. I was like, oh, I guess I'm just being too needy or I'm expecting too much. And so I think that's sometimes what's really challenging is knowing when it is an appropriate boundary, I guess. But I think maybe boundaries within ourselves don't have to be appropriate. Like, what would you say about that? Like, I mean, is ba- what are boundaries, I guess? Maybe that's a good place to start is how would you define a boundary and when should one be set? I would define them as perhaps like limits and expectations within relationships, including the relationship with ourselves that help keep relationships safe and secure. And so 
when we think about is a, a boundary appropriate, what context are we thinking about that in? Because are we thinking about will other people accept this boundary or is this a need for myself? Mm. Because if it's a need, then needs are valid. Who meets right. that need, that might differ, but that need is valid. And so even though it's much easier said than done, ideally, you know, will people accept this boundary? That shouldn't necessarily be at the forefront because if it is, then it's, you're going to be emotionally exhausted all the time. Yeah. And Gina, that really speaks wow. to you because that's, that's when you end up self-sacrificing yourself, right? When you prioritize whether the yes. boundary will be accepted over the, um, the obviously valid need for that boundary. Yeah, because a lot of people, I mean, with whether that be with my parents, because sometimes I'm like, oh, they're not going to understand, so I'll just keep dealing with this, mm-hmm. right? Or this person's not going to get why I don't want to see them, so I don't want to upset that person, so I'll just keep dealing with it. Has kind of been my MO. I mean, it's changed a lot this year. Um, and on that topic with my parents, I mean, I think a lot of people who have had maybe just challenging relationships with their parents, whether that it was cultural or not, um, I think for us... Part of my healing journey was first understanding that I don't need my parents to heal with me, that I can heal this relationship without them. And I remember when my therapist told me that, I thought, I need to find a new therapist (laughs) because I was like, (laughs) how am I supposed to heal this if they don't heal? Because I kind of went into the session thinking, how do I fix my parents so that they understand Mm -hmm. me? And so I'd love for you to touch on that so people can understand that you don't need to wait for the other side to get it or to heal, that we can heal that relationship, whether or not they're in the healing process with us. Mm -hmm. I think it really comes down to the need for acceptance, which everybody has right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be seen and heard fully. And especially when that comes to our family members. And again, especially when it comes to our parents, we Mm -hmm. want them to see and hear us fully for, you know, who we are in those moments. And so that means like, I don't need you to understand who I am. I need you to understand these boundaries. I need you to understand why I'm hurting. And that might not be the case. And so really it's a process of grief at that Mm -hmm. point of Mm -hmm. you're grieving the loss of the relationship that you thought you might have with your parents, um, the relationship you might you might have thought you would have with yourself, who you might have thought you would be in the eyes of your parents, all of those things. Mm. I've actually never thought of that latter one, and that one's so that one's hitting so deep because I think so many people live their entire life not willing to grieve the loss of how their parents see them, and instead maintain some sort of exterior false self so that they never have to grieve that. I'll just be not really who I am and do not really what I want to do so that I can maintain this belief or feeling that's associated with it that my parents see me in this way, that I have learned through my childhood that they believe is positive, better, worthy, acceptable. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. addressing Gina earlier, you had said, that sometimes you find yourself just doing these things where you're just exhausted afterwards. And I think it's really about, in the context of boundaries, understanding balance, right? So for some relationships, that may be okay once in a while where you're like, you know what, I really don't want to do this, but I'm willing to, you know, do this knowing I'll be exhausted after. And that's okay. But I think it's consistently when we notice like consistently day after day, week after week, year after year, I'm going out on a limb and I'm developing resentment in my relationships because of this. That's when we know that our boundary is being crossed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think resentment's like the easiest. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I mean, 
it is a question that I will ask myself even recently where I, I have felt more just triggered in general and more annoyed by like pretty much anyone around me. And I had to really ask myself, like, what is my unmet need? That's, I always ask them that. Mm-hmm. That's always like, what's your unmet need? Because mm-hmm. I feel like it does help you to get to the root of that. And most of the time for me, it's I want someone to see how much I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Like I want someone to acknowledge like how hard this has been and how how well like maybe how well I'm handling it or because sometimes that's hard too I think when we are regulating but there has been a lot of heaviness sometimes there's resentment that no one knows what I've been going through you know and so that's sometimes what I have to work through but yeah the part about the parents thing has been very hard because it's what Sam said I think for me even with this podcast I, I purposely don't talk to my parents about it because I don't even want to have the conversation about the fact that I'm doing this because I know they'll be against it. Sometimes that's protective for me where I just don't want to engage in in a conversation that I feel like is going to go a certain way. But there are times where I I want to express myself as I am and I want them to be able to see who I am. I don't want to hide myself, but I'm finding it hard to know when that time is appropriate. And I guess it's just when it feels safe in my body, I'm assuming. Yeah. And I think that that's a great example of kind of like an unspoken boundary, which is still a very valid boundary of like, you know what, this Mm -hmm. part of my life I know is going to cause a lot of contention. And right now I'm okay with not sharing it because I I want to keep this to myself. And that's okay Mm -hmm. to have those unspoken boundaries. Not every single boundary needs to be spoken about. Ooh, that's good. That's really good because I think I think a lot of the online therapists these days are saying like you need to set boundaries and there's people who are calling themselves boundary coaches, which I think is obviously, you know, very valuable for someone who's let themselves be walked all over for their entire life or they identify with being a people pleaser. But um, that's a really interesting concept I haven't heard yet that you can have a very strong boundary that's completely unspoken. Mm-hmm. An unspoken boundary that I have sometimes is sometimes I just feel overstimulated because of you know, social media, being a therapist, all of these things. Sometimes I just need shutdown time. And so what I will do, I will put my phone on do not disturb. And for a few hours, the whole day, whatever it is. And sometimes my friends and whoever will text me and they're like, Hey, like what happened to you? It's just like, Oh, I turned my phone off. And that's a boundary that I didn't have to communicate to anyone after the fact. Oh yeah. Like I just shut off for the day, whatever. Mm. Ooh, this is actually okay. This is a really good topic to go deeper on because yes, Gina, I think you were gonna say that you you feel the need to tell everyone before you do that, right? And I'm just an over explainer. I feel like I need just so you know, I'm I'm turning my phone off and it's it's not because of this, it's because of that. And I need to explain things so deeply, and that's a protector of mine that has come up through my trauma. But yeah, Sam, I want to hear what you have to say. Okay, so conversely, you know me, Gina, and this is so, I'm really curious to hear your perspective on this, Simone, because I often do that, okay? Like, I will just think to myself, I just need to, like, be doing nothing in the forest. My phone is for me to contact other people and not for them to contact me. So I will just go (laughs) totally, like, off grid. And I actually did Uh this earlier this year. So for an entire day, the only person I spoke to in the morning was Gina. And then I was off grid for about like nine, 10 hours. And it was just an unspoken boundary. I, I didn't call it that, but it was something I was treating myself to something that day and then just continue to stay off my phone because I wanted to integrate and all that. When I did turn my phone back on around 9, 10 p.m., I had received, I swear, almost 200 messages. The messages were coming from my partner, his family, my family, 
all of my friends, all of these missed calls because everyone had become so concerned that I had been like abducted. I had been in an accident because I didn't respond to a few people's text messages who thought that was really weird because I didn't speak the boundary. And after coming back online, I was and telling everyone, oh my gosh, I'm completely fine. I just took the day to like not be on my phone. Like what the heck? Like I, I didn't do anything wrong. And what I was met with was this, like, you can't just do that. Like, you have a responsibility to, like, people who care about you that need to know where you are. Like, you can't just go off the grid like that. And I have to say, um, just very honestly, I was super triggered by that because I was like, I can do whatever the fuck I want. I'm like, I can turn off my phone. And so I didn't, and that didn't really help us heal because I didn't address the concern that they had. And frankly, they weren't addressing mine either. I I think there was a mismatch here. Like neither party is seeing where the other is coming from. I think I could have definitely seen, oh, I guess you were concerned. And that person could have seen, oh, you just wanted space. But how do we take unspoken boundaries, integrate them into our life without completely, I guess, skirting responsibility to other people. And I guess I get confused on what is my responsibility to other people sometimes because like, do I need to update every single person who's close to me in my life that I'm going to be offline for 10 hours? Or can I just do that and come back and expect that they've done the work and gotten curious and wondered maybe she's just taking a day off, right? But sometimes I get projected onto me that I've done something Mm -hmm. completely wrong and I'm terrible because I've taken this boundary for myself. I think that uh, that can be a tough one to balance, right? So if, for example, a partner or someone that you typically check in with multiple times throughout the day, those are types of people that you may want to say, hey, you know what, taking the day, I'll, I'll text you, I'll communicate with you at the end of the day, whatever it is. But in terms of kind of like your whole contacts list or everybody that you're close to, (laughs) I think it's perhaps more so about that preemptive work, especially if you've already gone through a situation where you took your space and all the fire alarms were, were rung at that point. This is something that I sometimes do is I will take the day. And so if you don't hear from me after 12 hours, 24 hours, that's when to be concerned. But there will be times that I take the day and sometimes I don't have the energy to communicate to every single person that like I need space. So I have these few people that if you're absolutely concerned, I have a few people. I have Gina, I have my partner, I have whoever that will probably know what's going on. Otherwise, give me 24 hours and I will get back to you. Okay, that's good. That's good. I'm storing that one. (laughs) I'm storing that one because (laughs) people are starting to learn about me that I do do that. And actually when my partner contacted Gina that day, she was like, she does this all the time. Like she just, I just talked to her this morning and this is a a significantly longer amount of time, I guess, but she does do this. And I guess I was not willing to do the work of acknowledging like, okay, I could have probably messaged like one or two people that I was doing this. I didn't do that. But I think the reason why we couldn't get to a resolution faster was because there's other parties who are also their their trauma or feelings of safety, right? Or a sense of safety for me is being triggered. So instead of getting to the actual like root of like, oh, we we just felt unsafe, it was like this whole like, you know, you did a bad thing. Like you did something wrong. And of course, I think if anyone is being approached with a like you did something wrong attitude, I think even if you know you did, immediately your back is up. It's kind of like, yeah, it's a, it's I, I will defend myself before even becoming aware that I'm defending myself because of the energy that's coming. Yeah. And so uh-huh. I guess how do we sort of 
diffuse defensive energy because I think it's defensive energy that's causing all the conflict, right? Because Gina and I, we, we deal with triggers and, and contrast, but whenever we bring it to each other, there's no, Hey, I think you F this up and I'm getting mad at you about it. It's always, Uh I guess there's always curiosity. So is that the only suggestion that you have? Like how can someone who's constantly feeling defensive, defensive, you know, really release that energy so they can get to the solution faster? Yeah. I think it begins really with a soft startup. So like you had said, with your, you know, conflict or contention with Gina at times, it's approached with curiosity, not, hey, you fucked this up. So mm-hmm. how can I start this up softly in a way that allows the other person to be open to the things that I'm saying? And the second thing is, if that hasn't happened and you kind of go in guns blazing, take the opportunity for a break. You can always, always, always come back to a conversation, always. But if you allow yourself to take a break, take 15, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, to cool down and then reapproach the situation with a soft startup, it will make the world of a difference. Because it's just taking that break. Yeah. It's just taking that well, break. And that's what I'm really working on is like, yeah, before it gets to that point. So I definitely now have a certain marker where I can usually catch it with it when I start to get to that point, essentially when I'm starting to yell <laughs> or when I'm yeah. finding that I'm getting to the point where I can't quiet down or talk in a normal talking voice, um, that's when I'll say, I just need a minute. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give myself that time to do that. But I think it's really funny because so much of our patterning really tells us what's normal. And so I remember the first time I had a fight with my husband and he was like, why are you yelling? And I was like, I'm not yelling. I'm, <laughs> yeah. this isn't, this isn't, I'm not even mad. Like I remember being so confused. Like I'm not I'm not even yelling at you. I'm not even mad. This is not a fight. But to him, it was like this huge fight. So I remember that being really difficult because like you said, it really is two people that are kind of putting their books together and we're trying to make them both make sense. And that's really where so much of the conflict comes up because we're starting on such different starting points. Whereas where me and Sam, I think because there's an understanding of where she's coming from, where I already know I don't need to be defensive because I know the context of where she's coming from is really coming from love, which you would think you're going to have that with your partner. But I think with our partners or our families or friends, there's a pattern that's already been established. Mm -hmm. And I found that the most difficult thing in growth in my relationship with my husband has been breaking out of the expected pattern that he thinks I'm going to go down and really trying to break out of the mold of the avatar he has in his mind of who I am and vice versa. Because sometimes when he says something, I automatically assign that as what he used to do before. So I really think it requires an opportunity where both parties are willing to see the other person in a different way. I fully agree with that. And it's something that I do as well. And like something with my partner is I will, like you said, assign meaning to something that he said without even him having said it. And so I'll say, well, you said this. (laughs) He's like, I didn't even say that. Yeah. Well, that's what I heard. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's the crazy thing about arguments is like, we're not even arguing about what was said. It's just what we heard. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So being able to take a step back and approach it with curiosity, it allows you to slow all the way down and listen to what's actually being heard, what's actually being said, not what you're hearing. This reminds me of something that one of my therapists said before, which is you're not reacting to the moment, you're reacting to the pattern. 
And um, Mm. that brought me so much awareness because I wouldn't even be taking in all the nuances of this particular situation that's happening. I'm, I'm actually supplanting a lot of like old stuff onto this current moment and reacting to that. And so a lot of times I've noticed I'm not even reacting to what is happening. You know, so much of my reaction is like this false interpretation of like other stuff that happened never got resolved, things that I think are going to happen, but not if they, you know, things that just aren't happening. And then when I, when I finally bring my attention back into like, okay, like this moment, like what is needed here, I'm able to approach that with so much more clarity and not so much emotional baggage from the past. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I guess the follow-up question I think to all of this then is, you know, what are some things that we can do to really cope with trauma? Because I feel like whatever the trauma is from, whether it be, you know, sexual trauma or from our families or whatever, the beginning of it really is this feeling that it's our fault or there's so much Mm -hmm. shame that we even have it in the first place. You know, my anger used to be just the part I hated the most about myself. I couldn't be with it because there was this sense of I need to get rid of it and I'm not okay because of it and I hate this part and it's so damaging. And so it can be really hard to face it with unconditional love because it's the part of you that you've just been programmed to be ashamed of so much. So how do we get to the point where we do understand it's not our fault? I think really taking the understanding of that, that part of you developed for a reason, right? And so Mm. at some point it was a coping mechanism that had kept you safe. And so again, that theme of curiosity, why did that part develop? Why is it that you feel the need to be loud and aggressive and whatever else in order to feel heard? And showing that part compassion of, you know what? You kept me safe for a very long time. And at some point in time, I needed you. At this point of time, it's an overdeveloped coping skill, which is what I like to call it. Right. Overdeveloped coping skills are are things that, or behaviors that we have had at some point that has served a purpose that has kept us, kept us safe, but at this point in times is unhelpful for us. And so unlearning that coping mechanism so that we can make room for a new one. Mm, I like the overdeveloped. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> we definitely overdeveloped our anger. <laughs> and I, and I, think, I think that, yeah, like earlier Gina was saying that her husband was like, oh, I'm not traumatized. And, you know, a lot of people take that approach because it means that something is wrong. And Maybe even once mm-hmm. they move beyond that and got to the point where they're like me or Gina, they're like, oh my God, I'm like actually so traumatized, right? I think yeah. <laughs> we, can feel, we can feel so bad about that, right? Like, oh my God, there's so much trauma. Like, why am I mm-hmm. acting like this? But being able to see your trauma as really just a response to what happened and realizing that that wasn't a consciously chosen response has been really helpful for me because, you know, when I do act out in anger, I have to remember that I didn't consciously choose to be like that, right? If I could choose how I wanted to show up and react, I would probably choose a more peaceful route. So there's something sort of within me that believes that this isn't necessary and it's not my fault that Mm -hmm. it's happened, but it is my responsibility to become aware and replace it, repair it, or heal it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when we go with shame as a way to stop behaviors, if it works, it only works very temporarily. Mm, can we go deeper into that? Because yeah, because when we think about shame, shame tells us that we are not lovable, that we are bad as a person. 
And so if we think about it um, from a perspective of a child, shame is something that can be detrimental to our survival, right? So if our parents, you know, shame us, that means that the people who are responsible for my safety, security, and well-being in this world do not think that I am a good person, do not think that I am worthy. So what does that mean? Because as a child, we can't possibly conceive that perhaps our parents don't have the skills in order to use different methods or whatever it is. It has to be me because mm-hmm. I can change mm-hmm. that at least. I have control over me. If it's my parents' fault, then I have no control and that means I'm doomed, essentially. Uh, so we try to take power back by blaming ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. And so shame really just suppresses these feelings. It doesn't get rid of behaviors. It just suppresses the feelings that cause those behaviors. And so then as an adult, either we overcorrect. And if we were super quiet as a child, we weren't allowed to speak. We weren't allowed to express anger. We weren't allowed to do any of those things. Then we overcorrect and we are this loud, angry person when we grow up. Or those are just behaviors that existed in childhood that allowed us to get our needs met. Using that same behavior that created that coping mechanism is not going to help, quote unquote, get rid of that coping mechanism. So then what are, how do you create new coping mechanisms? I guess it really, like you said, just goes back to curiosity. Um, But for someone who maybe isn't familiar with therapy, I mean, Sam and I've gone for for many, many years and, you know, we we do study a lot of this so we kind of know what to reach for. But what are some simple coping mechanisms, I guess, when you're first becoming aware of these triggers and, and, and situations, what can you start with? I mean, something super simple is, is journaling, whether that's video journaling, which I absolutely love, or written journaling. Yeah. I think that that's super helpful to just create awareness around behaviors because it can be hard at times to begin reflection when things feel confusing, you don't really know, you it's hard to really understand your perception between what happened and how you feel. And so creating kind of that log can be helpful in terms of, okay, let me go back to this and really either see what I was feeling and and saying or um, read what I was feeling and start that journey of reflection. Mm. And then, I mean, I think something that that's really important for people to know is that, you know, our our podcast is obviously called Spiraling Higher. And the whole reason we called it that was because healing is an upward spiral, especially with trauma that you're likely going to have to keep repeatedly going through different lessons Mm -hmm. to heal different parts of the same trauma. Um, But I think myself included, and I know Sam experiences this too, is sometimes it's like, I thought I dealt with this already. Like mm-hmm. I've already healed this. You mm-hmm. know, I remember one of my therapists said, oh, you have perfectionism tendencies. And I was like, oh no, I dealt with that years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then not realizing in other ways that it shows up. And so I think I we really want to normalize for people that it's okay if you have to keep t- dealing with the trauma because I know that's another shame thing for me of how many times I have to deal with it mm-hmm. and how many times it keeps showing up in my life. So I'm sure it's different for everyone in terms of how long does it take to heal, but I guess I would just love to hear your perspective on normalizing that it's not a one and done kind of thing sometimes and that mm-hmm. it's okay if it repeatedly comes up. I think that often the perspective around healing is that once I'm quote unquote done, this never shows its face again. And so it's just about reconciling with the fact that this is likely something that I'm going to cope with to some extent for the rest of my life. So in some seasons of my life, it may not rear its head at all. In other seasons of my life, it may be harder to deal with. 
And that might be based on circumstances, experiences, whatever that might be. But just because it shows up again doesn't mean that all of the work that you put in doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And so for myself, I've been open about the fact that I struggle with hyperindependence. So I know that that's something that I'm going to have to deal with for the extent of my life. Am I getting better at asking for help and whatnot? Absolutely. But there's definitely certain things that trigger that response in me. And yeah. that's not something to be ashamed of. Yeah, I have a question about this, but I've been thinking about attachment styles. And I think anyone who's interested in therapy or going to seek therapy, they've probably done some Google searching and reading about this. But what I've come to understand is your attachment style is your attachment style. Like you don't go to therapy to f- to fix and change the one that you have. I think it's more you go to learn about yours and how to deal with it when it comes up. And I don't know, is that is that your experience? I think that attachment styles can change over time. It's just uh-huh. that certain behaviors, certain responses, again, still might rear their head, right? So if you are someone who is sensitive to rejection or the perception of rejection, that is likely that something that is going to continue to to be difficult for you. And like when you move towards more of a secure attachment style per se, or you develop some of those skills, does that mean you won't struggle with rejection? Absolutely not. It's just about the awareness of, oh, I'm seeing this with my rejection lenses on. Let me just take these off for a second and see things a little bit clearly and regulate myself. Ah, okay. That's interesting because I guess I was perceiving it as like, oh, if I still have those reactions and that's still my style and I have to learn to work with it, even if like my thing was like, okay, I'm not secure attached clearly, like, (laughs) but that's okay because I'm learning to understand the kind of style that I have and how to work with it so that I can show up in more secure ways. I think that's how I had interpreted it. And that, that did feel empowering for me. But I like what you're saying, which is yeah. that like, no, like you, you can with more awareness move into a more healthy style, but just know that you will still sort of act in some of the old patterned ways. I think that when people think about secure attachments, they think about not really struggling with much. It's just like, mm. oh, you know what? You want to break up with me? Okay. I absolutely respect your boundaries. Oh, I can <laughs> communicate my needs so effectively, all of these things. But that's just not the way humans work because we have emotions, we have previous experiences, all of those things. So there are going to be certain aspects of life that we all struggle with. And in terms of moving towards more secure attachment, it's just being better able to handle a lot of those things. So are you better able to respect someone's boundaries, even if you have feelings about it, because that's human? Are you mm-hmm. able to meet the needs or communicate needs to someone, even if it's difficult because you're human? Yeah. Okay. That's a really, a really good share because yeah, I think that a lot of us who are healing, going to therapy, you know, doing the work, quote unquote, you know, we do unconsciously believe that we're going to get to a place where we're just not going to be like that anymore. (laughs) And Uh it's really a perfectionistic sort of controlling mindset. It's like, if I control all of these factors and I am perfect and I heal this, then I will be forever at peace and never have to deal with this. And I was under that guise for so long. You know, I was using my spiritual and healing journey as like a way to just like 
you know, basically knock the human out of me. I'm like, I'm just going to be like a peaceful light being and just like never feel anything. And it was so distressing to learn that that's just not what's possible. And, you know, integrating the truth of my spiritual reality and just reality in general is that life is both. Like life is human. Life is being the being. And I can't knock this out of me. You know, these feelings I really need to get more curious about and challenge the fact that they're challenge the belief that they're even bad in the first place and, you know, really helpfully work to mend the coping mechanisms that were overdeveloped and show up in more conscious ways. But yeah, accepting this like whole new reality, which I used to think was hopeless, but now I just see as existing, you know, like I'm not going to stop getting triggered because I I used to view triggers as failures. And Mm -hmm. I I think that's the framework that I had to shift out of because if triggers are failures, well, then like you're never going to win at life because (laughs) triggers are, Mm -hmm. like you said, the external stimuli is not going to go away. And so I think reframing Mm -hmm. triggers really as opportunities is going to be super helpful for anyone who's listening. Mm -hmm. And I even used to struggle with that as a therapist. Like I'm a therapist. I I shouldn't be getting triggered. Mm -hmm. I'm a therapist. I shouldn't overreact. I shouldn't be communicating poorly, but I'm also a human and me being a therapist sure means I might have more tools in my toolbox than maybe the average person just because it's something I've studied. But at the end of the day, I'm still someone who's human and still someone who's going to struggle with some of these things because of my own experiences. And Mm -hmm. ideally, when we think about triggers, it's not that they go away, they get, you know, a little bit less loud. Yes. That has been a really big thing that I keep using to describe inner dialogue where I'm like, there's one voice that's just getting more quiet and one that's getting louder. And the louder voice is obviously my conscious response. And so I like how you said that, that it kind of just gets quieter and easier to respond to versus just reacting to. Mm -hmm. Right. But I love how you talked about like, I'm a therapist. I should like know better because even, you know, us in in, in this realm, there are sometimes things like, oh, I'm a mom now or I shouldn't be uh-huh. getting mad about that or I, I've already dealt with that. And so actually on that note, we, we always ask this final question and that was such a perfect segue of what is something – because I feel like everybody has this certain theme, maybe one or two or more than a few – that they keep on cycling through or keep on coming back to that they have to need to heal through. And we love to ask this question to, again, normalize for everybody out there that even a therapist Mm -hmm. also has triggers and things that they have to cycle through. So what is something that you have in your life continuously needed to spiral through and heal through? I would say it's my fear of relying on other people. I think that for even up until now, I still struggle with it. It's like, how can I rely on people, actually rely on people without micromanaging, without all of that kind of stuff and not feel shame when other people help me? Because I think something that I am still trying to unlearn is that receiving help doesn't mean that you are less of a person. And yeah, it's something difficult. It's something that rears its head very often, but something that I'm working through. Mm. I feel like so Sam can relate to that. Oh my gosh, yes. As you were saying that, I'm, I, I've definitely. Thank you so much, Simone. But I've definitely <laughs> recognized myself to be like hyper avoidant. Like, don't want to deal with myself or any other people. Like, I don't want people to rely on me. I don't want to rely on others. And it's like, you know, as I move into more leadership roles, I, I really have to heal that. 
And I've realized that this really is, for both of us, such a product of this like very individualistic capitalist society that we live in. Because, you know, in other parts uh-huh. of the world, asking for help is just what you do. Like, you're weird if you don't. Yeah. Right. Like you would be, you would be viewed as yeah. like a weird, strange outsider with like social, like missing social cues. Like if you were just kind of doing everything individually, yeah. but here in the Western world, it's very like pull up your own bootstraps and do it on your own and like show everyone yeah. how you got to the top without needing help from anyone. You're self-made, right? All of this is so, it's just so pedestalized, right? Like I did it on my own and I've just learned that I don't, I don't want to go on my own anymore. And it's been the greatest gift working on, especially this podcast with Gina, because it's one of the things I've shared where I just feel like, oh my God, I don't have to do it by myself. Like there's another person who's like helping me create this and actually make it better than I could have on my own. And so rewriting that story too, I think is super important. I'm sure you are, Simone, that, you know, when you ask for help, things are like actually better, not worse than when you do it on your own. Uh Uh-huh. It relieves so much of the pressure and it's exhausting doing things by yourself all the time. Yes. It's funny because um, Sam and I are really opposite where I'm someone that's more dependent mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she's not. And so it's been really interesting because I'm someone that wants to be needed and I want to need you. And she's like, I don't want to need you and I don't want you to need me. <laughs> so it's been really interesting to navigate through this relationship because I used to make that mean she didn't want me and then yeah it was just uh-huh. it's been really interesting to witness um how different we we are but it's been such a cool way to observe the human experience through both of our lenses because we are so different but thank you so much for all yeah. of this wisdom Simone I know that so many people are going to learn so much from this episode I know I have and I just I'm walking away from this conversation just ultimately feeling a lot more compassionate towards my trauma again I think I've started to kind of build up some resentment towards it of just needing to deal with it again. And so I think that I'm giving my myself a big permission slip to just be okay with it mm-hmm. and forgive myself and to just love love all those parts of me and and know that it's it's okay. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. And do you want to share with people how they can find you? Your Instagram account is amazing. So everybody go follow her right now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My handles are the cognitive corner on Instagram and TikTok. And it was such a lovely conversation. It was so much fun. I'm so glad that you guys invited me on the show. Yay. We'll have to have oh you back. Gosh. On. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We were just so, so blessed to have your wisdom and helping us reframe so many of these things. I think it's going to be super valuable for everyone. So we are so grateful for your light your wisdom and for your time today. Thank you so much, Simone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this honest conversation. We hope it brought you peace, clarity, and a little bit further along your spiritual journey. If you loved this episode, it would mean the world to us if you left us a five-star rating and review so we can bring you more conscious conversations, spiritual topics, and guests. Here's to spiraling higher. 